Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. It's just the two of us, just the two of us, making it old school tonight as uh, science advisor Matt Moniz and psychic medium Stephanie Burke are both out. Uh, Stephanie's actually down at an event with Porter in Virginia. So uh, if anybody down there is listening, hello to all of you and hello to everyone out there. We talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night here on Spooky South Coast. And uh, tonight we're going to have a, 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 listen, I don't even know how we're going to cover all that we have to cover tonight with our guest, Dr. Rita Louise, but uh, we're going to try and get through as much of it as we can because her new book, Stepping Out of Eden, if you have not picked it up, I highly recommend it. It is something that will kind of... Uh, I don't want to say change your mind or, or, or change your worldview, but it's definitely going to make you think a lot more critically about how mankind developed into what it has. It, it starts kind of at the beginning, at the very beginning. And it takes us all the way up to today and talks about how man has evolved, how man has uh, not only gone from being an ape to being a human being, but also from how man has gone from being a kind of non-spiritual to a spiritual being, and uh, and even beyond. So we'll get into all of that coming up in a little while with our guest, Dr. Rita Louise. And it's been a while since we've had Dr. Rita on the show. Matt, I know that you were um, conversing back and forth with her. Do you remember when it was that we had Dr. Rita on? Uh, how about if I turn on your microphone? This is a recurring theme for me. <laughs> I believe it was uh, way back in uh, 2012. 2012, and that's when we were talking about her book then, Dark Angels, A Guide to Ghosts, Spirits, and Attached Entities. And what's funny is it was one of our like most commented on episodes, especially when it comes to you know talking about kind of the darker side of the paranormal. And I remember for, for weeks after that, you know, getting stories from people that had their own experiences that were similar to the ones that Dr. Rita was talking about with us. And, and then, of course, we also talked about our poodle at the time, too. That's true. Uh, Bitsy glad. Bob. Yep. Uh, because if you remember the meme that was going around, was it a meme then? Was there such a thing as memes? Um, I think it was, yeah, before people started calling it a meme, I think. Yeah. 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 But it was a, it was a picture of a, a white poodle in a tinfoil hat, and it said, can this poodle in a tinfoil right. hat get more likes on Facebook than Glenn Beck? Right. We didn't understand it at the time, but. No, we didn't, but we, we get it <laughs> we now. We loved it. We loved it. <laughs> right. We're like, what are these things that people are putting up, these pictures that people are sharing on? What is it called? Bookface? <laughs> right. Fa- Facebook? What? No, I think I think we were pretty well-versed in Facebook by 2012, but certainly uh, memes were kind of a new phenomenon. But that dog ended up, I think the dog did get more likes than Glenn Beck, but we'll find out about that a little bit later on with uh, Dr. Rita Louise. And uh, we could also... Uh, if you want to call in during the show, we can take your calls, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. But you can jump in the chat room as well. For those of you listening on the radio or maybe listening on the WBSM stream or listening on the Paranormal Radio app, we also have a live YouTube show going on at the same time. So while you're hearing us on the radio, you can also watch us in studio as well. But because nobody else is here and... It's just me, and Matt never puts himself on camera. You're going to see a lot of me on the show tonight. So I apologize in advance for that. Uh, yes, the beard is coming in. And I want to say hi to everybody in the chat room tonight, everybody who has joined us, uh, and people 
if you listen to the show on podcast later on, or if you listen to the rebroadcast on the Dark Matter Radio Digital Network, then if uh, if you look at some of our YouTube videos, you can actually see some of them up there still have the chat in them. Uh, but uh, generally, every Saturday night, we have a party with all the folks that are in the chat room who sometimes are talking about the show. Sometimes they're not talking about the show, but that's fine. It's a, a community of people who have come together uh, to discuss, you know, whatever's on their mind. Uh, sometimes it does relate to the topic at hand, but a lot of the times it's just people going back back and forth and having fun. But in that chat room on YouTube is uh, a way for us to kind of generate a little income for the show to kind of help out with the things that we do. Uh, this show is produced completely by uh, Matt and myself, and uh, really we, we don't take any money from the station outside of, you know, using their equipment and all that. We run the website ourselves. We run the podcast ourselves. All of that uh, comes out of our pocket. So we, you know, we try to find little ways for people to help out where we don't have to, we used to have to do the PBS pledge drive every year. Remember when we did that, Matt? We used to like, beginning of the year, we'd be like, we don't know how we're going to pay for the website this year. We don't know how we're going to pay for the podcasting this year. I mean... We're no better off than we were 13 <laughs> right, years ago right. when we started doing the show, but at least financially. But uh, but we have come up with different little ways for people to help out. And one of the ways that people can help out is in that chat room you can you can donate money uh, through what is called super chat. And so when you go into the chat room, you have that option if you want to make a donation. How do they how do they do it, Matt? How do they they just hit that little button at the bottom? Yep, there's a little button that um, I think it's a little money icon. Yep, little dollar yep. sign there. And um, then you can write us a message, and it'll be posted at the top of the chat um, for a period of time. And I think I think it's tiered. I think the I think it starts at like two dollars, and then um, for each dollar more, I think you get more and more. Your your message can be more and more lengthy. Okay. So so that is there for anybody that wants to take advantage of it. And and right now that money kind of goes to us. Uh, we kind of switch it back and forth between some weeks it goes to us, some weeks it goes to a charity. And uh, we want to thank Cosmic JE for donating last week. We were so wrapped up in our conversation with John Brightman about horror movies that we completely didn't realize that it came in and uh, and forgot to thank Cosmic JE on the air. But uh, thank you this week uh, for doing that. And I think what we'll do is as we get closer to the holidays, you know, we're going to find a good charity that we can work with. And something that probably affects people here locally too on the South Coast, uh, which I know you know you have to they have to actually be involved with this YouTube program. Uh, but let's see if we can find somebody locally that we can work with, and then we'll just let people kind of put their holiday messages in super chat and uh, and we'll say them on the show because that's a good way to to kind of raise some funds. And uh, speaking of the holidays and speaking of doing something nice for people, I just want to throw this out there really quickly. If you go to wbsm.com right now, and for those of you listening on podcasts a little bit later on, I'll tell you how you can find the story. But right now, if you go to WBSM.com, you'll see a story that I wrote about a woman named Irene Miller who lives here in New Bedford. She's a lifelong resident of New Bedford. And at the end of this month, she will turn 110 years old. And that's amazing, 110 years old. Think of all the history that she's seen in her lifetime. And all she wants for her 110th birthday is for everyone out there to send her a birthday card. And in the story, we have the address. There's a couple ways you can send the cards in. You can send them directly to Active Day of New Bedford, which is where they care for her, or you can send them here to WBSM, and then we'll bring them over to her at Active Day. 
But uh, I would like for everybody out there that's listening, all of the Spooky South Coast audience, all of the Spooky South Coast family, to just take a moment. You can go out and, and buy a birthday card. You can make your own birthday card. You can just print something out on your computer. Anything that you can do to, to make a birthday card to wish Irene Miller a happy 110th birthday and then just mail it off to us and we'll make sure that it gets over to her for her birthday. And I also ask for those of you out there that have social media, that are on Facebook, that are on Twitter, if you can take that story and, and share it around and kind of make it go viral. See, the people who are caring for Irene at Active Day, uh, they, you know, they, they, they're expecting to get, uh, you know, probably maybe a hundred cards, maybe a couple of hundred cards. I kind of want to inundate them with thousands of cards for Irene. I want Irene to have so many birthday cards for her 110th birthday that it'll be almost her 111th birthday before she's done opening them all and reading them. So we need everybody out there to send one in. I want to thank some of my friends out there for sharing around the story and for tweeting it out to their followings. Uh, thank you, John Tenney. Thank you, Chad Lindbergh, my, my good friends from Ghost Stalkers. And, uh, and of course, people know Chad from his acting work. He's in the Fast and the Furious and numerous other projects. And uh, thank you to both of them for sharing it around. And, and if anybody else out there, you know, I, if you only have five followers on Twitter, share the story out. Because if those five people decide to send those cards, that's five more cards Irene will get for her 110th birthday. So check that out right now on WBSM.com. And if you can't find the story there because you're listening to this a few days later and it's, you know, all the news stories have popped up and kind of it's, it's, uh, it's gotten a little bit buried by, by more recent news. All you have to do is either go to my Twitter account at Tim Weisberg. You'll find it there. Go to my Facebook. You'll find it there. Or just search Irene Miller, I-R-E-N-E-M-I-L-L-E-R and WBSM and you'll find the story on Google. Uh, or Bing, for those of you who are weird and use Bing. But no matter how you find it, you'll find the story there, and you can get the address, you can get all the information that you need to send her a birthday card for her 110th birthday. And uh, and I will drop a link in the chat room right now as well for those of you who are there and, and want to start getting cracking on that now. Uh, you get that, Matt? You get that all set? You're going to do it? Okay. See? That's why it helps to have a silent assassin. Because uh, he can take care of all those kind of things. And, uh, sorry, we have, uh, so the, um, the best part about this is I think it can kind of show the world that all of us weirdos that like to talk about strange stuff, that like to talk about paranormal topics and horror movies and all the other things that we cover here on the show, it shows people that, you know, we, we kind of are normal. And we do want to wish a woman a happy 110th birthday. Because we're just regular people. We just like weird things. And uh, from what I understand, Irene is a big WBSM fan, so maybe she's a big spooky South Coast fan. Although she loves the Red Sox, a very, very avid Red Sox fan. So I don't think that she listens to us on YouTube or on the WBSM app during Red Sox games. I think the Red Sox take precedence. But, uh, Matt, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. Do you know what she attributes her, her long life to? No, what's that? So uh, she's not really on any medications. 
Okay, that's good. She, she's very healthy for 110 years old, but every night she has three fingers of whiskey ah, there you before go. bed. So keeps her clean. That's nice. Keeps her keeps her uh, sterilized. A little, uh, what, Dr. Pepper? Make a hot toddy? Oh, I can go for one of those <laughs> right now. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so and they're actually going to have a birthday party for her, and they're inviting everybody to come. So anybody that's around on December 28th, that wants to go to active day at 3 p.m., they're having a birthday party for her. And I think uh, I think Phil's going to head over, and, and I'll try to head over, and uh, we'll see if we can maybe get some of the Spooky South Coast fans over there as well to, to wish her a happy birthday. So thank you so much to all of you who have already said that uh, you are going to send her out a card. Uh, we, we appreciate that. And thank you all to all of you who will hear this later, and we'll agree to do that. As I mentioned, uh, coming up, our guest will be Dr. Rita Louise, but uh, I want to let everybody know, just a programming note, we won't be here next week because I'll be at one of my favorite places in the world, the Oliver House in Middleborough, for what we're calling Holiday Spirits at the Oliver House. It's going to be a paranormal investigation of the Oliver House, which, for those of you who are unfamiliar, it's from the 1700s. This is the place where Benjamin Franklin was staying in this house. When he opened up a closet door, and in that closet he found, and I don't know if Ben Franklin was snooping. I mean, I think he opened the closet maybe to put something in the closet. Maybe he was trying to, uh, you know, put a little, you know, just take something out of the room and put it aside, or maybe put his luggage in there. I don't know, like his luggage, a term that they would have used back then. I don't know. But, you know, maybe he's hanging up his coat. Or something. I don't think he was snooping around. But when he opened up this closet door at the Oliver House, he found a stack of letters. And then I think he was really snooping around because he started reading the letters. And when he read the letters, he discovered that the Oliver family had been sending information back to the British monarchy about what the the colonists were planning for the American Revolution. So the Olivers were spying on the colonists and, and, and sharing that information with the Crown. So Ben Franklin brought this to the attention of the other revolutionaries. And the Olivers' names were pretty much mud at that point. Although this was before your name is mud became a thing, because that was Abraham Lincoln's time. But still, it kind of ruined the Oliver family and their reputation. So this house played a very, very important role in American history, and it's part of the Bridgewater Triangle. Middleborough is part of the Triangle, and it's a place where there's a lot of activity that goes on. So this is, uh, over the last few years, I've only been going there for a couple of years, but it seems like every time I go, just insane stuff happens. And a little bit of the, you know, breaking down the wall of how these things work you know, a, a lot of you out there who have come to our events and come to help s- restore these historic locations, you get it. You know that that's what this is about. We don't do these events to get rich. We don't do these events to line our own pockets. We do them as fundraisers to help these historic haunted locations. And the Oliver House is a place where, if it wasn't for the paranormal, this place would have been raised a long time ago. They would have demolished the Oliver House if it wasn't for the paranormal fans and researchers and the great volunteers over there who 
do all that they can to bring attention to the to the story, but also restoration for you know just trying to make history stay alive a little bit longer. And congratulations to them, to those volunteers, because the renovations that have happened at the Oliver House over the last few years have been amazing. They now have heat. They now have running water. They now have indoor plumbing, which means they have indoor toilets, which means no more having to go out into a porta potty in the middle of the night to use the restroom while we're investigating. And it's all because of you, the paranormal fans, and the money that you have been able to help raise for the Oliver House. But there's still more restorations to be done, and that's why we're going to get together one more time before the end of the year, one more event, and it'll be Holiday Spirits at the Oliver House next Saturday. So you'll investigate with me, we'll have some dinner, we'll have some fun, and we'll hopefully have some weird shadow people like I've had the last few times I've been there, or maybe some stuff flying off the wall. All I can say is, at the very least, you're helping to support keeping this place alive, but there's always strange things that go on there. In fact, just recently, they caught a full-bodied apparition on camera, and they will show you that footage next Saturday night when you come to the event. So definitely check it out. Definitely come to... the event if you can. Maybe it's an early Christmas gift for somebody. Maybe it is a uh, maybe it's a Christmas gift for you. That's possible too. And we're fine with that. So just go to SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to take part in that. Uh, and if you want to if you want to gift it for somebody and you want me to kind of, you know, maybe send them a note or send them a little video telling them that they're getting that as a gift, happy to do it. Just email me, Tim, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and I'll turn that right around for you. Sorry, we uh, I'm, I'm trying to get some information here uh, at the same time because uh, we, we do have a, a school bus crash that happened uh, nearby here. Uh, in Berkeley, and we're trying to get some information. Our reporter, Tim Dunn, is actually on his way over there. So uh, if we get any information on that that we can share on the air, we will do so uh, before the end of the night. But for those of you who are trying to follow along with it, I would follow along on the WBSM Twitter account or follow Tim Dunn on Twitter at ConsiderMeDunn, D-U-N-N. Uh, he'll be making sure that he puts some updates out there, but he's he's going over there to see exactly what's going on, and we'll see if we can get some more information for you as it comes along for the course of the night. But right now, uh, we are going to take a break. We'll get Dr. Rita Louise on the line, and we'll talk about her new book, which is called Stepping Out of Eden. It takes the concept of human origin to a whole new level, and we'll find out all about that. In the meantime, if you want to check out her website while we're getting her on the line, you can go to soulhealer.com. That's where you can find out all about her work. We'll talk with her about all the different things that she does, all the different services she provides, and uh, and some of her other books that she's written as well. But you can check it out for yourself, soulhealer.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at PsychicDoc. And, uh, and for those of you who 
heard Dr. Rita Louise's first episode on Spook, first appearance on Spooky South Coast, you know that you are in for a treat for the remainder of the evening. So uh, why don't we take a break? When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by Dr. Rita Louise here on Spooky South Coast. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk Entertainment, the Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. And uh, we are joined now by our guest for this evening. And as I said, it's it's been a little while since we've had her on, but we're happy to have her back. Uh, one of our most, probably most commented on episodes, probably one of our most uh, referred to episodes by our listeners, was the first time that we had her on. And now she's back with us again. Best-selling author Dr. Rita Louise is the founder of the Institute of Applied Energetics and the host of Just Energy Radio. She's a naturopathic physician and a 20-year veteran in the human potential field. Her unique gift is a medical intuitive and clairvoyant illuminates and enlivens her work. She's the author of books such as Stepping Out of Eden, which we'll be talking about tonight, E.T. Chronicles, what Myth and Legend Have to Say About Human Origin, Avoiding the Cosmic 2x4, Dark Angels, and Insider's Guide to Ghosts, Spirits, and Attached Entities, and the Power Within. And she joins us now on the program. Good evening, Dr. Rita. How are you? I am great. Well, you know, you should have told me that I was, like, popular on your show. I didn't even know till just now. Oh, you were super popular, and it's our fault for not bringing you back sooner. Uh, thank you for, for reaching out and letting us know about this new book, and and thank you for putting it together because it says it right in the introduction and it's completely uh, the truth. Nobody has really looked at the forest yet. It's all about the little individual trees. And this is like the first real big picture about where we are and how we got here. So I can imagine this was kind of a, a daunting task to take on. Actually, it wasn't that bad. See, I guess... Did we ever talk about the E.T. Chronicles or Man Made, the Chronicles of Our Extraterrestrial God no, book no, on your show? We never so did. See, I, I wrote that book, uh, and, see, and that came out, I think, 2012. So anyway, um, and that looked at our history based on the mythic record. And it started with In the Beginning, and it ended with The Rise of Civilization. But it was the story of the gods and how we fit into this giant mythic narrative. But in doing all of this research, I just kept finding this information about, you know, where did, how did we move through from, you know, the theory, the theory of evolution or however this whole thing played out. And, um, and I really decided because I didn't, I touched on the topic in the other book, but it would have been an entire book worth of, you know, going off on this separate path that I didn't want to get into and decided that I wanted to really look at where we came from and how we got to where we are now, which was a really interesting uh, adventure into you know, our history and our psyche and what, you know, why do we do the things that we do and, and why do humans act human? Well, and, and also part of it too is why do humans sometimes act not human? 
because you know part of looking at the big picture of what mankind has become also you have to look at the kind of the anomalies of mankind too and look at how you know for the most part people seem to be good and 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 try to follow along the proper path but we also we still have these animalistic tendencies we're still not these completely enlightened beings that we like to pretend that we are that we still kind of sometimes uh, can revert back to some of our earlier forms and, and, and revert back to some of those primal tendencies and, and basic instincts. But see, what's interesting is when you look at the stories of the gods, they were constantly fighting with each other. I mean, you know, in the Western world, you know, we think of God as being this loving, caring, omnipotent being. But when you look at uh, stories from other cultures, it's like they're constantly fighting with each other, they're vying for power, you know, I mean, there's stories of the gods, like, raping other gods, I mean, they have some torrid kind of stories that come out of there, and I joke around and and look at the the laws and the rules, and I think this is kind of what got me started, the laws and the rules that we have imposed on us, you know, like the Ten Commandments type thing. Um, and it's more like, well, do as we say and not as we do, because our behavior really is very similar to what you find in a lot of these ancient myths. Yeah, and, and you know, when you look at the way that the gods are portrayed, we – we kind of follow, for the most part, a monotheistic view in today's society, and we have a God who is supposed to be beyond reproach to some degree. You know, God is supposed to be perfection. But at the same time, you know, we also talk about uh, a God who is sometimes angry or a God who is sometimes vengeful. And there still are those little bits and pieces in today's world of putting human traits and characteristics onto God. And that's something that with some of these earlier gods was, was definitely something that went on. We, we definitely kind of personified and, and, and put our own, uh, I don't want to say failures, but kind of our own tendencies as, as human beings. We, we allowed that to be reflected in, in who we worshiped. But see, I, I question that assumption because it really is an assumption and I would love to know oh if I can only find out this person who came out and said that the myths that have come down to us are actually fictitious tales because what if what if that was just BS well you know and what if we look at myths as being true you know and I'm going to kind of shift focus here for a second you know when we're brought up by our parents, it's like we take on many of their characteristics, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, and I don't know if you have kids, you know, but they do something wrong and you reprimand them and you go, oh, my God, you know, my dad used to say that to me. You know, and so and I think we inherited some of this behavior from the gods. I mean, I'm you know, gonna... and, and not that we gave, you know, we put our our personalities on the gods but they passed on their behavior to us i'll I'll be the one to say something that will probably get phone calls and emails and stuff uh sent into the station here but i think they're kind of all just you know made up stories they're all man-made stories they're all things that we have come up with even if there is a god or at the time there were gods or however you want to look at it this is still all being filtered through the lens of human beings uh, we're still 
the ones who are taking whatever information is there and interpreting it and putting our own spin on it. So there's always going to kind of be that that bit of a tinge to the stories that are being shared. Mm, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. Okay. <laughs> you, you think that the information that we got came down from a divine hand? Well, you know, there's the big G God, as Georgie Zuculos likes to say, and then there's the small G God, and I'll be I'll explain my commentary. You know, so when we think of God uh, in the Western world, because you really have to separate the Western world, you know, the Judeo-Christian or the Abrahamic traditions that we find in the West, um, other cultures, you know, in India and Native American cultures, you know, they're polytheistic. And so you don't have to sit there and say, well, these stories are made up because they believe them because that's their history. Um I was going somewhere with this. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I lost it. Move on. Well, that's okay. We have plenty of time. If it comes back around, you just let us know. Uh, okay. One thing that we're not worried about here on the program is ever being linear. That's uh, time is just an illusion. We. As well, long- I know where I was going. It's back. So when we think of God in the Western world, we think of this omnipotent creator who can manifest whatever he wants or she wants. You know, with the wink of their head or wiggling their nose or nodding their head. And it can become manifest into the physical world. And so, all right, I'm a bit of a Star Trek person. And so, and if you read the book, there's a number of Star Trek references. Because one of the things Star Trek did was give us some vocabulary that many people are familiar with. And so in Star Trek The Next Generation, there was the character Q. You remember Q? Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely, yep. I love Q, you know, and Q was omnipotent and he could wave his arm and a mariachi band would appear and he would, you know, do something else, snap his fingers and the Enterprise would be three galaxies away. Now, that's omnipotent. But when we look at the gods that we find in mythology, they are anything but omnipotent. Now, why would an omnipotent creator need a celestial chariot to fly through the skies or need a magnificent weapon to defeat their enemies or need uh, some other kind of technology to change their shape in order to conceal who they are to spy on each other, for example. You know, and so in these stories, they really talk about very high technology items that the gods had in their possession but why would they need them? And how could our ancestors going back thousands and thousands of years even conceive of these things when maybe they had bows and arrows? Maybe. Well, but also, too, when I look at the way that some of those stories were handled, um, you know, I'm looking at them as being passed down uh, most of the time through oral tradition and changes being made and and tweaks being made, and, and, and as with any story, you're always looking at your audience and trying to see if that story is, is grabbing them and seeing if it's holding their interest. And, and sometimes you may add in little things and add in little tidbits that will change the way the story is told in the future. So it's hard to realize if the the version of the gods that we're getting now are accurate. Even if it's still believing in those same gods that they believed in you know, 3,000 years ago, it's it's still going to have these little shifts and turns that are going to kind of be somewhat reflective of the times. 
Agree. However, however, see, I should have sent you the other book, too, because it would just like answer this question. When we look at the stories and so when I do my work, okay, this is kind of one of my like personal requirements. So when I sit there and start talking about something, I need to find corroboration. And so, for example, um, there's the Plato story of Atlantis. And when you look in the mythic record around the world, you don't find other cultures talking about Atlantis. And so as far as I'm concerned, it gets put to the side as being an anomaly. So when I do my research, it's look, I look for consistency, consistency of storyline. And so, and we find them. And you look at things like the, the flood story, like the Noah flood story, mm-hmm. the concept of the sun, moon, and stars being placed into the sky, the notion of a battle happening between the gods or two groups of people where the, the loser ends up being sent into the underworld. You know, and so there are these stories that you find these nuggets, you know, like this could be this whole long story, but then you find the nugget. And you look at what happens before the nugget and what happens after the nugget. And so even though it's changed a a little bit, you know, because of that retelling and slight cultural variations, there's still a huge level of consistency that you find. That Writing that other book made me crazy because it made my head spin trying to organize these stories because some cultures would add in something. For example... And I know we're probably going to get into this anyway, so I'm going to jump the gun here a second. Absolutely. Um, the, the story of the creation of man. You know, so in the Bible, you know, we're created from the dust of the earth. Um, there are a lot of stories that talk about humanity being created from mud or earth or in a clay pot. And then there's a whole other narrative that we find of humanity being created with some form of genetic material, whether it's the bone of an ancestor, the bone of a god. Uh, the blood of a god, uh, the god spitting into a clay pot. Um, and then in s- some other stories, you find the clay reference or the dirt reference and the genetic material reference. And so you sometimes find where they mesh together, where these cultures just kept this one part and these cultures kept this one part. You know, and... um you know, but those nuggets stay there. I mean, I like throwing out, you know, when we tell stories of Santa, you know, everybody has, you know, what they maybe will tell their children about who and what Santa is, but there's still that same nugget. You know, he right. comes out on Christmas Eve and he brings toys to your house, you know, and so there's still that same nugget that you find from story to story to story to story. Which is why we can look and say, you know, okay, there there was a deluge before the flood of Noah. You know, there was a Messiah that followed the exact same story before there was Jesus. So the fact that these, you know, stories have kind of you know, predated and, and, and been recycled and, and been brought back into the forefront, it's not so much the, the details and the facts that matter. It's It's what people get out of the story, and it's what that story will mean for them and their own personal evolutions. But what if the stories are actually history? 
Which I'm sure versus they are. just being stories. I'm sure that you there's, know, it, there's parts of them that are true, but also, you know, when you look back and you say, hmm, you know, how come this story has been told by different cultures and, and, and at different times, but it seems to be the same story? Is it that we're, you know, is it possible that it's not so much that, say, just using Jesus as an example and, and knowing that there are messianic stories that follow the same type of, of narrative? Is it so much so that it was just recycling that story in the time of Jesus? Or was it just that there happened to be another Messiah that came later? From what I understand, okay, is that um, people that would write stories, you know, I'm going to say like biographical type stories, because we find the same thing with King Arthur, whether he was a real person or not, mm -hmm. um, that they, if they don't have all the details of who they are and where they came from, they would take pieces of stories from other older narratives and stick them in to flush out the character. And so from what I understand, that has been a popular thing to do in creating stories and creating narratives about people, you know, and so take that as it, it may, you know, nope, that um, makes sense. That makes sense. But, you know, but it still came from an older source, you know, so we have the stories of the Immaculate Birth and all of these things that are tied to Jesus that, you know, may or may not be true, um, that they think maybe came from uh, older sources. And so who knows, maybe there was a person at some point in time back when that actually fit all of the characteristics that are tied to him. And I think that, you know, certainly we can get more in-depth in this as the conversation goes on. Uh, and we're going to take it kind of all the way back to the beginning, as you said, going right back to the creation of man and kind of bringing it up forward. I'm just watching the clock here because we do have a news break in about five minutes that we're going to have to take. But, um, you know, even starting at the very beginning, man was a pretty complex being to begin with. We're already looking at something that goes uh, beyond what we see in a lot of nature. I mean, just look at the fact that, and you mentioned this kind of early on in the book, we have opposable thumbs. You know, just having that separates us from most of the other beings on this planet. And, and so that one little change, and we think that we have, you know, intellect where other, and, and certainly rationality where other animals don't. <laughs> I'm going to laugh there. <laughs> I mean... I, well, I was actually looking at it more from uh, assuming that other species don't, but I also see what you're saying, assuming that our species does. <laughs> but pretty uh, much. <laughs> but there is something there is something special about man. As much as I think that a lot of us thinking that we are special is our own ego, but there is something special about man. There is something different because we are kind of genetically made to be different. Exactly. And do you think that that was, you know, you feel like that was for a purpose, that was with reason behind it, not an accident of evolution? I don't think it was an accident of evolution. Um, one of the things that we find when we start looking at the archaeological record is that scientists are kind of dumbfounded as to how so many changes could have occurred in the human species in such a short period of time. It steps outside of the framework that they've identified for evolution. Additionally, it seems as if 
some of the major advances that happened in the human species and Neanderthals and Devonians um, seem very targeted to achieving a certain goal or outcome. At least that's how it appears. And I can't really give you a very, you know, I can give you some specifics, um, you know, like our ability to communicate and and speak very specifically. You know, we walk upright. You know, you talked about opposable thumbs, but we're also one of the only animals that don't have any fur, which from an evolutionary point of view doesn't really make any sense unless you go with the aquatic ape theory, which uh, says that we were actually, you know, living in and around water and it was an evolutionary change to lose our body hair because we were actually in the water. Um I mean, if you don't think humans have fur, I wish my co-host Matt Moniz was here. I would have had to take a shirt off on camera <laughs> no, that, for you. No, that's the Neanderthal part. That's <laughs> right. what I keep thinking. No, I know what you mean. <laughs> but uh, and then maybe that's why he skipped the show tonight because maybe he was afraid that we were going to try to use him as an example. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think we can definitely get into to all of this coming up uh, in the next hour. Uh, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we will talk more with our guest, Dr. Rita Louise. And if you want to check out her website again during the break, soulhealer.com, and you can pick up not only this book that we're talking about tonight, Stepping Out of Eden, but also the other books that she was mentioning as well. And uh, and we can find out more coming up in the next hour as well, Dr. Rita, about the different services that you offer and the different abilities that you have and how those play into your work as well. Because obviously, you know, with a website like soulhealer.com, you know, there's there's some some pretty heavy healing going on. So we can talk about that coming up as well uh we will if we get any updates on this uh this terrible bus crash that is being reported uh, we will share that with the audience as well coming up and if you want to call in with your questions for dr rita throughout the course of the show the number is 508-996-0500 toll free 877-996-1420 you can also share those questions in the chat room on spooky tv at spookysouthcoast.com Right now, we have some very lively discussion going on in the chat room. So if you just go to SpookySouthCoast.com or go to our YouTube channel, you can jump into the live chat right there as well. You can share your questions there. And another good way to get them to us is via Twitter. You can either tweet us directly at SpookySC or you can use the hashtag SpookyLive. And if we see the questions, we'll shout them out for Dr. Rita. And, of course, the other way is email SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. But as we always say, the best way to call, the best way to pose a question to our guest is the old-fashioned way. Call in, share your voice, share your thoughts, share your questions. We welcome it, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. So we are going to take a break for the news. We'll be back with more Spooky South Coast coming up. And uh, again, don't forget one more time to let everybody know we will not be here next week because we will be at the Oliver House for Holiday Spirits at the Oliver House. If you would like to get tickets to join us, just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on Events, and you can get your tickets right there. Highly recommend it because they're very limited, and it makes a great gift before the holidays. We'll be right back with more Spooky South Coast.
Welcome back. Our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. And uh, we are here talking about the paranormal as we do each and every Saturday night. Actually, tonight we're talking about kind of the bigger picture. We're talking about the forest for the trees, as I mentioned earlier, and as it's mentioned in the book, in the introduction to the book, Stepping Out of Eden, which is written by our guest tonight, Dr. Rita Louise. We're talking about kind of putting all these pieces together and seeing what it all means. And, uh, and Dr. Rita, that's what I think, you know, you kind of just do in general, is you see the bigger picture in things, uh, judging by not only your writing, but also the work that you do overall. It, it seems like you're always looking at you know, what does this all mean? What, how does this all tie in together? How are we intertwined with each other? I, I'll have to agree with you. I mean, I think I always am asking questions and looking for answers. You know, when I was doing my radio show, Just Energy, my uh, engineer, my production engineer, after I was with them for like a year, he goes, you know, I finally figured you out. And I go, what do you mean you figured me out? He goes, well, your questions, he goes, you actually ask questions that you want answers to. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't I ask questions that I wanted answers to? Right. Well, I mean, but also, you know, asking questions and, and you know, just being curious is, it keeps us, it's what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us going. You know, if I ever knew everything, I think life would be pretty pretty damn boring. Well, you know, and I think I really like, you know, and this is going to kind of sound weird, but I like puzzles, you know, and finding all of these disjointed pieces and trying to put them together into something that makes sense. You know, whether it's playing a computer game, I like those, you know, quest find stuff kind of games and, you know, even doing jigsaw puzzles, I even like those, you know. So I think my brain actually, you know kind of gets off on that. And that's that's the good stuff, you know, when you can... To me? Yeah, when you can find... It, not only when you... It's even when you think you know something. And something comes along and changes what you thought that you knew. You know, some people get upset about that. Some people say, no, 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 wait, but this and this and this and this. And they don't want to go beyond what they thought that they already knew. I think it's 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 exciting to, to suddenly realize that everything that we thought we know about something is wrong. I love that. I love having to, to go back and kind of reanalyze and, and not only know this different truth now, but to be able to go back and look at how we arrived at that original truth to begin with. And that's what I think this book does is it, is it finds a way to kind of look at why we thought the things that we did as we came along as a species. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have to agree, you know, for me, when I'm doing my work and when I'm writing, it's like, you know, I'll go in with a question and not really a bias of what kind of answer I'm going to find. It's kind of, you know, when I, you know, you were talking about the work that I do and the soul healer thing, you know, and my day job, <laughs> my day job is working as a medical intuitive and as a intuitive counselor, you know, so I do a lot of psychic work, you know, and in doing that work, you know, it's about answering questions, resolving issues, but not um, – it, it's not about my opinion. It's about the information that I'm receiving on those intuitive channels and reporting it back to my client. And so when I do my research, you know, it's not about me and necessarily 
my beliefs and me trying to prove my beliefs. It's about, well, what's the information? And now I'm going to report it back to you. And so, you know, I've had people kind of complain to me that I didn't, I don't write conclusions. I mean, there, you know, the chapter might have a summary, but I don't say, and this is what it is because it's not for me to tell you what to believe. It's for me to ask the questions, research the information, present the information, and then for you to walk away and make your own conclusion based on the evidence that I present. And I think that that is not only um, kind of the right way to, to do things as well, but it's the way that's going to best the person that you're you're talking to is going to come away better for it. You know, you're going to kind of show them kind of tell them the questions that they need to ask and and, and get them on that mindset and on that wavelength. But in the end, it's going to affect who they are as people and and how they look at other things beyond just the topic at hand. And that's what I think is great about, you know, working in the paranormal genre is you come at people talking about things that they might not normally be accepting of or that they might be kind of on the fence about believing, but you start putting some critical thinking skills into that and that will translate over into other things. I know people who are, you know, great, you know, policemen or, or women or detectives or private investigators, what have you, that try and bring those skills into paranormal research. It doesn't always translate. But the people who are paranormal researchers can take some of the critical thinking skills in that if they're doing it correctly, and they can start applying that into their everyday life, and, and it just changes who they are as people, and it changes the way that they do things. And... It's you know it's not un- unlike being a journalist. It's not unlike being, um, you know, somebody like yourself, where you have to kind of look beyond just the facts that you're being presented and, and get into the heavy lifting and the digging that requires coming up with what you think is the complete story. Well, and I think anybody working in in the and I'm just going to say this the any alternative field, quote unquote, alternative field. One has to be okay with being outside of the box, but I think it's also their responsibility to be open for for the box to go down a rabbit hole if that's where it needs to go and not and not filtering and saying, well, you know, that's outside my belief system. It's like, but if that's where it's going, that's where it's going. You know, there are people that say that science, you know, contemporary mainstream science isn't really science. It's just reporting the same stuff over and over again, um, where people that are working in the more alternative research areas are really the ones that are bringing forward new and contemporary pieces of information for, you know, the public to look at and explore and maybe open doors into new areas of investigation and study. It, it's funny because you're exactly right when it comes to science. It's not it's not that they're ever looking for another path that they may have uh, you know overlooked when they were coming to the conclusions that they did. Everything is always about further proof or, or, or further basing things on the conclusions they already know. So once science thinks that it knows something, it just accepts that as being the only given fact version of it and then just uses that fact version of it to go on and make other uh, assumptions and other hypotheses about other things too. And in the end, if there's another way to arrive at, a, at the same conclusion or another way of, of coming to the same realization, 
that could totally change what comes after it. But but science is kind of, uh, to some degree, a bit of an echo chamber and, and just a bit of a reiteration of what's already been proven. Exactly. You know, I read this story, you know, and sometimes you see stuff on Facebook and you don't think to, like, save it, you know, or print it or whatever. But, you know, the scientists have discovered that people can detect things that are external to their physical body, you know, like not using their five senses. And, you know, and they're talking about the stuff and they figured the vehicle that they can do this. And my comment was, yeah, it's called chakras. <laughs> mm-hmm. I go, they should go to a metaphysical bookstore and get books on like psychic phenomena because, you know, people have known about this for thousands of years and they've been writing about this for thousands of years and you're really just reinventing a wheel that we already knew about, but you don't want to believe exists. I mean, obviously you went through this whole, you know, history of mankind and, and putting together stepping out of Eden, but what do you think led to the abandonment of some of those beliefs? Was it, was it the age of enlightenment? Was it the rise of Christianity and the, uh, kind of the squashing of, of other belief systems? What is it that kind of shoved such, you know, metaphysical beliefs to the wayside? I mean, I really do believe it was the rise of Christianity. You know, we went through the dark ages. And so if you thought outside the box, you were a heretic and maybe were burned at the stake or there was some kind of, you know, negative outcome that happened. And then when there was the European expansion into all of these other countries, into the Americas, into Australia and New Zealand and into Africa, all of the indigenous traditions or many of them were eliminated because they were heathen and they couldn't see past their belief system and couldn't recognize that although the form was very different, you know, many of the beliefs that in the traditional and indigenous cultures have are very similar to the traditions and beliefs that you find in the Abrahamic cultures. I mean, we know that better than anybody here where we are uh, on the spooky south coast. We're in Massachusetts, you know, where the colonists landed and where they interacted with the Wampanoag Native Americans and where they immediately began dismissing the native beliefs. And if they had kind of accepted the natives kind of uh, nature worship, uh, they probably would have saved themselves a lot of struggle in the in the first couple of years, especially with the harsh winters and all of that, because you know, here the natives are trying to tell them, like, this means you have to get ready for winter. This means that we're going to get a frost. This means this. And because they didn't have the same belief system and they felt like uh, like the natives were savages, they didn't pay attention to that. And they mm-hmm. suffered as a result of it. You know, and, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, the ego egotistical piece of humans thinking that we're better than animals and it was even worse when you talked about european expansion moving into these other cultures making the assumption that these people didn't know anything but they were very well suited to living in the land that they were inhabiting as you're just explaining right and and if they lived simpler it's only because they could and because they found a way that made it work for them. But, you know, just because they're wearing a loincloth or you're wearing a pair of pants, it doesn't mean that they're any less uh, intelligent. It doesn't mean that they're any less, um, you know, that they're any less connected to the world around them. And and I think that that's kind of the uh, – it's a mindset that still persists, is anything that's different is probably wrong. 
But, you know, and it's interesting, and I'm going to bring it into a more contemporary thought pattern. You know, if you take someone from an indigenous culture, you know, that or, you know, 500 years ago, and you give them an iPhone, they're going to look at it and think that it's some kind of spooky magic. And we're going to be like, what? You don't know how to use it? You know, and, and that's going to be our attitude toward them is like, oh, well, they're, you know, they're stupid and they don't know how to do it. However, if you take one of us and you put us in the middle of the Amazon jungle somewhere and just drop us off and maybe give us a knife and a pair of shoes to wear, um, I don't think we'll be very successful where those individuals would be probably just fine. And and I think that we have kind of turned our backs a little bit on – having that part of our of our you know of our makeup that we as as we think that we are evolved and as we think that we are enlightened we tend to forget that we are also kind of uh we're victims of the world around us and that we have to kind of maintain that and and I don't know why we've stepped away from that I, and we almost look at it now as like for example if you're somebody who tries to live close to nature, if you're somebody who is maybe, maybe you're Wiccan and you worship nature, or maybe you're a survivalist and you're just out there trying to, you know, prepare for the inevitability of, you know, the fall of our technological society, either way, people are kind of looking at you as being, being weird and being different when both of those traits were something that just a couple of hundred years ago would have been revered. Mm-hmm. Well, and they are skill sets that we as modern, I'll say, city dwellers have lost. I mean, think about young kids today. I mean, I've made my kids learn how to cook, you know, at least on some level. But there are people, younger people, that only know how to microwave and only know how to go out and eat, you know, and they don't know (laughs) – they don't even know how to cook a can of Campbell's soup, which is just really kind of scary to me. <laughs> you have to tell them that they have to add the can of water. Yeah, you don't, have to tell them to add part. the can. You know, and it's just like, all right, you're really scaring me now. It's like, do I really have to tell you that? But they don't know because they've never had to do it. You know, and that's a skill that, I mean – I remember growing up, TV dinners were like, ooh, the big new thing. In the little aluminum tray. Right. Those, those are still good. Now, I don't know, people, I mean, now they just have to make them, you know, larger because we're fatter as a society. We need, <laughs> we need more sustenance, but you know, they, they still, they still get the job done. That, that warm brownie still hits the spot after some Salisbury steak and corn. See, I can't, I can only do the turkey dinner. That's, the oh, one. see, this is, this is the portion of the show where we talk about food. It always happens every episode. Um, oh, don't get me started on food. I'm like, we're a big foodie household, so. <laughs> oh, well, that's, this could be a whole other episode sometime. Uh, okay. But, uh, one of the, you know, one of the things that I said earlier in the show is that, uh, you know, we'll probably have to take this discussion right back to the very beginning because that's, that's where you, where you start, uh, in the book and you start with the creation of man and, and how man came to be and, uh, and, and how we've started this journey to where we are now. Were there any, you know anything at the beginning that uh, that stands out in your mind as being indicative of how we would end up where we are now? Hmm. Well, and I think we kind of touched on this as far as um, you know acting like 
the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I feel and I, I talk about in the book is that I feel like, okay, so there are the physiological changes that happen to us, which scientists really can't understand and they can't really figure out how and why they occurred necessarily. Um, but there seems to have been, a, to me, a precipitating event that occurred within the human species, and that is that it seems as if humanity was educated. Um, and from a mythological perspective, that notion is really supported by myths that we find around the world. Um, I joke around and say that humanity was a pretty dumb lot because any story that you hear about any tech- technological advancement we made it was a gift from the gods. It was never, you know, about Joe Bob over there, you know, figuring out how to do fire or figuring out how to do agriculture. It was always the gods gave us this and they gave us this and they taught us to do these different things. And, um, you know, and I feel like that also came to us being, and I'm going to say civilized, into being a certain way. You know, there is um, something called feral children. Are you familiar with the notion of feral children? Uh, if it's what I'm thinking of, it is. It's Okay, the- I'll, I'll just explain. So feral children are children that are separated from, I'm going to say, humankind for extended periods of time, young children. And when they are left with other animals around them, they will take on those characteristics and over – Recorded history, there have been about a hundred cases of feral children. Actually, there's a video on YouTube of some very contemporary feral children of this girl, girl that was left with a, in a dog house with some dogs and she like barks and yaps around. Um, and they have discovered that depending on how young they were when they were separated from humanity will depend on how much they're able to reculturate back in. So, with that said, if if you get a dog and separate it from its parents and bring it into your household, your dog is still going to act like a dog. Your cat is still going to act like a cat. If you take a human and separate it from humanity, they don't grow up to act, quote-unquote, human in the way that we we see ourselves. They take on the characteristics of... Those, you know, I mean, usually they're brought up by animals or Mm -hmm. interact with animals. And those are the kinds of characteristics that they take on. And so what I what I glean from that is that much of who we are is through this ongoing, consistent level of training that we receive from the day we leave the womb until the day we die. So we are definitely products of nurture more than nature because we, we don't have these tendencies to be who we become uh, from from a, coming from a very natural standpoint. And, and instead, we're, we're definitely a product of the environment that we grow up in. Makes sense to me. I mean, I've seen people who, just looking at society in general and, and people that I've known throughout my life, 
people are reflective of, of how they grew up and the culture they grew up in. And if just look at something as, as simple as just the way people act, you know, if they grew up in a trashy household, they're going to act trashy themselves. And if they grew up in, in a, in a household with a modicum of decorum, then they're going to have that decorum themselves. And it's, it's not so much just a matter of, you know, were you trained correctly by your parents to, to act that way? Were you raised correctly? It's a matter of you are reflecting what you saw and, and that's what kind of built those, not even, we look at it as a value set, but it's not even a value set. It's just a, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a Pavlovian response. It's something that just becomes ingrained in us because that's what we're surrounded by as, as, as we mature and evolve. See, thus my comment that we didn't put the stories on the gods. The gods passed that on to us. Okay, you're starting to get me over onto your side. Mm, and it's, we're okay, getting there. okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, but one of the things about us, though, you know, you mentioned the, the stories, but one of the things about us as, 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 as a species is that we need those stories. I mean, even if it, if it doesn't matter, we don't have to be talking about, you know, creation stories. We don't have to be talking about uh, the basis of religion or any of that. We just like stories. We like to be entertained. That's why we watch TV, while we listen to the radio, why we, you know, stare at our smartphones all day. We like to be entertained by some sort of narrative that's, that's going on outside of ourselves. And so these stories had to come from an early time. I mean, the, the mythologies of the early days of man have, a lot of them have kind of stuck around because we were creating stories that we liked and that, that, uh, that we wanted to keep around, that we've just kind of evolved a bit over time. You know, and the question that kind of gets thrown in there is, you know, there are fictional stories, you know, but then there are stories of history that gets passed down. And see, actually, I found an article on Facebook, and I didn't save it, but I was able to find it back online. Um, so there is, um, in the Alaska area, I thought this was really interesting and I put a different story in the book, but this one was even older. Um, and it's the Hell, Sunk Nation, uh, Aboriginal group off of British, uh, Columbia. And they talked about, um, these people that lived on their island, um, like 14,000 years ago or, you know, really far back in time when, you know, it was supposedly still during the Ice Age, and scientists were like, ah, oh, that's just a made-up story, and it's not possible. People couldn't live on this island because it would have been covered in ice. And, you know, so that was where science was going. Like, your myths and legends about a colony of, you know, your ancestors being here, you just made it up. You know what I mean? It's not true. Until they started doing some digging, and they found that there were actually – colonies, you know, or tribes that lived on this island going back 14,000 years. Hmm. You know, so the story that they had about their ancestors colonizing this island, you know, way, way, way back in time actually held up to be true. I mean, there are, I mean, if you look at today's, I guess, tendency, and maybe I I shouldn't say tendency because it, it kind of just exists within the paranormal world or maybe maybe some slight tendrils outside of it but you know we have a lot of the the people who are believers in in the ancient aliens theory a lot who believe you know kind of subscribe to the the von Daniken chariots of the gods idea that uh we were created and uh and or at least kind of 
helped along by extraterrestrial beings, by something kind of outside of our world. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, you, you obviously, I, again, as you mentioned, I haven't read the other, the other books, but, you know, that's, that seems to be something that's on the table with you. Well, you know, and when I wrote the last book, E.T. Chronicles, also known as Man-Made, the Chronicles of Our Extraterrestrial Gods, um, that wasn't my intention. You know, my intention was to sit there and see what the mythic narrative had to say. And I took the Bible and I put it to the side. I took like Eric Van Daniken's work and Zachariah Sitchin's work and I put it to the side. And I said, I'm just going to see what this has to, to say to me. And it took me down this giant rabbit hole, leaving me with really no conclusion other than it was a group of extraterrestrials, just based on the story narrative. So then if that's the case, how much of what we have become has been influenced by that? Um, or was it most just, of it. So it wasn't just a matter of... You know, pouring the seeds. This was actually, you know, they were tending the garden. So there's a the uh, Babylonian priest named Barosus who wrote. Well, during the Babylonian period, I think it was like 600 A.D. and um, and so he talks about these characters called the Onas, and the Onas came and visited the earth. Well. They came out of, the, out of the Erythrean Sea six times, three times before the flood and three times after the flood, and their job was to educate humanity. And so we find even in the mythic narrative that there were different periods where there were these, I'm going to say, downloads that were given to humanity. And that's one of the things that I actually talk about in the book is where we start finding these spikes. You know, it's like, there's not a whole lot going on, and then we find a technological spike, and then a whole lot, you know, not really anything going on, and then another technological spike, you know, and we, the last really big technological spike was about 45,000 BC, 20, you know, between 25 and 4,500 BC, and there really hasn't been from a mythic record because myth kind of went away with the advent of writing, um, but then there are some people, and I'm kind of jumping genres here, in the UFO community that feel like, you know, downed UFOs have given us additional technology. You know, so there was the Roswell crash, you know, and so, well, maybe it didn't crash. Maybe they left it there for us so that we could take it based on where we were and back engineer it because we went from – not much technology to having, you know, computer chips and resistors and, you know, the whole electronic revolution that really started to occur after that point in time. And I always like to include Velcro because supposedly <laughs> that was, you know, <laughs> one of the things that we got out of that too, Velcro. Um, you know, and so I feel like you know, this is something that they have been here, that they have been guiding us along this whole pathway. You know, one of the things that I find to be a little bit annoying is that we don't know what the end game is. You know, we don't know why they came. Right. We really don't know why they chose to develop us. 
Um, it does seem as if we were, and I'm going to say a kind of domestic species, um, but whether that was a domestic to do labor or domestic like we were the house pet ape man, you know, it, it's very unclear because myth is totally silent on that, you know, and if they are still with us, you know, what's the end game? We don't know. You know, the whys of the whole thing are just deathly silent in that area. Well, and, and there are some, I guess, some issues that I would have with that in looking at the way that, you know, mankind has evolved. Did they stick us in certain areas because they wanted to see, you know, will, will, will you thrive in this condition? Will you thrive this way? Uh, when we look at kind of the, there's kind of been ebbs and flows of of some of the evolution and progression of man. It hasn't been a simple straight line the entire time. And I just feel like if the, if the if they planted those seeds originally and just let it go, I can kind of buy into that, but to think that they're coming back and kind of nursing things along, it doesn't it kind of doesn't make any sense why we would have, you know, these great civilizations that existed you know, thousands of years ago, the Incans, the Mayans, having all the advantage, uh, the advances that they were able to make, and then we have another another culture, another society that comes and wipes them out, but yet doesn't have nearly the same advantages that they had. You know what I mean? It's like it's almost like we've gone backwards just as much as we've gone forwards as we've gone mm -hmm. along. Well, there are a number of cultures that you find around the world that refer to their culture as like the navel of the universe, um, you know, that there were these, and I'm going to say hotspots, you know, where these downloads were given, you know. So like in Peru, uh, around the Nazca area, which I find very interesting because that's where we find the elongated skulls and the Nazca lines, that was a hotspot for a number of things. Um, in Australia, even though they're very indigenous, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything politically incorrect here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at one point in time, you know, they were a hotspot. Uh, the Middle East, you know, was another hotspot. Um, you know, and one of the things that I think, although I can't find enough material to prove it or at least support it enough for me to want to write about it, but this is just something that I think I conjecture was that there was a group of gods that at one point in time controlled the entire planet, that there was just like one group. And as the group started getting bigger, that they started taking over different areas on the planet. And so that's why we see these different hotspots appearing. And it's kind of one of the reasons why in Judaism we have, you know, there is only one God me you know and it's kind of like he's talking the people into like just follow me don't follow ball you know because he's a bad guy just follow me you know and that there were some competitions going on with the gods which i think is really interesting but again i don't have enough material to put it totally together but it does seem like in in the western hemisphere it's almost as if 
one group was in control versus in the East. And so you find myths that almost contradict each other, but it's almost as if it's written by two different groups looking at the same thing from a different point of view. Did that make sense? No, it does. I mean, it, it's it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, like a, like a game show almost. You know, like one of these one of these celebrity game shows where uh, they have different celebrities who have a, a team of people that are their followers, and it's you know pitting them against each other, and it's all based on how much they can motivate their teams. You know, uh, you know kind of like. I don't know, family feud or something to that regard where, you know, it's, we're just kind of the pawns and, and, and whatever it is that they're trying to prove to each other. Mm hmm. Exactly. That's a heartwarming um, thought. <laughs> well, you know, you read through some of this stuff and it's like actually a little scary. You know, some of the thoughts that people have as to why we were created in the first place, you know, if you start talking about, like, and I mentioned his name, Zachariah Sitchin, you know, that we were created as a slave species so we could mine for gold, which I have found zero evidence for, right. zero evidence for, um, you know, or you can take the David Icke attitude where he suggests that we were created to be a food source, not to like, you know, so that they could have us for dinner and we would taste like chicken kind of thing. Um, but more that they feed off of our energy. And so by keeping us in conflict, by keeping us in fear, by creating these totalitarian systems, by herding us into, this is mine, herding us into cities um, and creating the dynamics that you have there, um, it gives them, you know, we put off bad vibes and that's what they live off of. Kind of like that Monsters <laughs> cartoon movie. You know, where they go and they they scare the little kids, they open the closet door and they scare the little kids and then they take all of that fear energy from the kids because that's what powers their city. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of having it be like they're getting good energy and laughter and joy, you know, they're they're getting the fear energy. And it's almost like that, or at least, you know, that's what David Icke proposes is and that that's what they're doing. And now that uh, now that you've mentioned the name David Icke on, on Spooky South Coast, this is the part of the show where I have to look into the camera and blink so you can my reptilian eyes can come through when people play it back on YouTube. Okay, I'm done. Uh, the well, now I'm going to have to go watch the video just to see that part. <laughs> uh, now Matt's going to go in there and edit that during the video to make it look like I actually do have reptilian eyes. Cool. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean that's that's the thing is like so many of these theories end up getting so out there. Um, that it kind of bastardizes the original concept of there being intelligent design. And, and that's really what we're talking about here. It doesn't matter if we're talking about gods, if we're talking about alien beings, we're talking about something greater than just an accident of evolution that turned us into who we are. And, and one of the key components of that, and you, you cover this in the book, is language. The fact that at some point we stopped just grunting at each other and were able to have a, a form of communication that was a little more sophisticated. And I, I hope every you know Saturday night before I do this show that I evolve a little closer to actually having language, but sometimes I fail, sometimes I succeed. <laughs> I think I'm doing all right tonight. I think you're doing great. Thank you. Well, you know, and it's interesting because there are some people that suggest that the advent of language is what caused us to actually separate 
from our ability to interact with animals and the animal kingdom. And I don't mean like running through fields and eating grass, but, um, but by having that, you know, animals communicate with each other, you know, based on their vibe, you know, and it's like, you have a good vibe. Okay. You know, I'll come over here and, you know, drink out of this water bowl. If you have a bad vibe, you know, I'm going to stay away. Um, but language makes us be more mental, you know, it, it takes us into our brain and it changes who we are. And so there are narratives out there that say, you know, at one point in time, we could communicate with the animals, but I don't think they might communicate like blah, 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 you know, here, Bitsy, you know, and they understand what you're talking about. Um, but that there was this energetic dynamic that happened between us and the animals. And then as we advanced, it created the separation so that we can't walk into a field and have a deer eat out of our hand. I mean, unless it's our, you know, friendly neighborhood deer that comes to our house for dinner every day kind of thing. Well, and, you know, we, we have a lot of those around here, except they also would like to run out in front of our cars, too. That's the, that's the downside of that. But, uh, well, when you're looking at, though, the way that we have evolved, uh, you know, I guess you can look at language as, as being one of those things that has brought us to the point of, of where we are, but in, in some ways it also holds us back because it's become such a, a dependent form of communication that we don't really pick up on other things about it. You know, we don't have those. Obviously, you have intuitive abilities because you've practiced them and because you've developed them over the years and, and you put them to work all the time, but generally mankind has turned its back on having any of those type of abilities that had we not been able to speak to one another, we probably would have honed a little bit more. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that, you know, we find in uh, indigenous cultures. And it was one of the things that was a driving force in writing this book. And it was the whole concept of ritual and the ecstatic experience where they would, where like the shaman would be able to communicate with a god or a ancestor, you know, basically kind of, you know, being possessed kind of thing. Um, but, you know, that's what they were doing or they would, you know, channel the information or whatever it was. I mean, because it's really not very clear. Um, but when it wouldn't be like, I'm going to go and channel an ancestor, you know, or communicate. It was the whole community participated in this, you know, and they were taught to check into their feelings and they were taught to interact with energies and look out for spirits. I mean, so there was, it was part of the culture to, at least be closer tied to the unseen world where today, because we're in the Western world, um, we're told it doesn't even exist. Right. And and I, I want to get into that concept uh, in just a moment, but I, I want to take a step back to what you were saying where, you know, there is this, there was this kind of a, a need, I guess, to have a, a connection between those, those gods and between those, uh, you know, more enlightened beings or however you want to look at it and just the the common man and uh, and you cover it in the book you talk about you know shamans you talk about uh clerics you talk about god kings you know these the, these these people who have been rulers over mankind that have you know claimed to be divine or or have been looked upon as divine that we needed to kind of have this 
this bridging of the gap between us and the gods. Well, I mean, the God Kings is actually kind of interesting because, you know, we have stories everywhere of the gods coming down and having relations with humankind. You know, so one, there had to be some kind of a genetic connection that they could reproduce, you know, but we have stories of like Hercules and Perseus and Hunamon, who's a Indian god or demigod, you know, and Enkidu, yet another demigod, you know, and all of them have a parent who was a god, but they were shired by a human. And so, and it is believed that those people, those individuals, had more enhanced capabilities. And I think that those people, those individuals, because they were suited to living on the earth, eventually became in charge of these different cultures. And then the whole tradition tied to the king or the god king just stayed with that position, whether there was any, you know, residual godlike genetic material in the person at all. Yeah, and you know, you see some of the stories and 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 some of the more recent history. You know, if you're looking at history over the last you know thousand years or so, and and you look at some of these, just the way that that was abused. You know, that position, that reverence, um, and even today we see it. I mean, I'm trying to tiptoe around political statements here, but there are some who feel that when they get into a position of power, uh, that uh, that that makes them somehow uh, above others and, and, and somehow should be treated differently. And in a way, like we're looking upon you to lead because we see characteristics in you that either we want to aspire to or that we feel – you know, are those that should be guiding us and, and and trying to act like you're better than somebody doesn't seem like a good quality to be looking up to. No, it, it's not working too good. <laughs> and, and and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about any particular leaders or any particular rulers. I mean, this is something that we're seeing across the world right now. We're seeing kind of this um, this lenience toward looking for those authoritative leaders and uh, and and i think that that's you know kind well, of haven't we been well trained unfortunately we have and unfor- but, i mean that's kind of my point we've been well trained we're not as enlightened as uh as we may have thought that we were uh, one of the one of the things that you cover in the book too is and and this this was interesting because it's something that i haven't really thought of you know, we talk a lot on the show about ghosts, and we talk a lot about some of the reasons why we have a need to believe in ghosts and why we have been fighting a cultural taboo against ghosts uh, for all these years. But you just bring up this simple paragraph in the book where you mention the fact that, you know, the dead were considered unclean because they probably died of some kind of disease or would have some kind of disease. And so that the living wasn't supposed to interact with the physical dead, uh, because the, of the impact that that could have. And, and do you think that that is what led to some of this taboo toward, you know, communication with the dead? I don't think so. You know, when you start talking about taboos and cleanliness and, and stuff like that, the biggest concern that indigenous cultures had going back deep into antiquity is that they feared that when someone died, they could come back as a ghost and haunt them and torment them. 
And so they really feared these spirits. And so I think it was more concern with not, you know, with, with one, getting them to pass on. And two, you know, and I'm just, this wasn't in the book, but this is just me saying just, you know, because we're talking ghosty here, that they didn't want to get attached entities. Hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, but, 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 I mean, there has to be some sort of, uh, of a belief in them though, because every culture had a word for ghost. Every culture knew about the concept of, oh, of what it a was ghost a, could be. It was a huge concern in every culture. And so here's my little, my little ghost tidbits that I'll share. How's that? I love it. So the earliest, see, this is, you can, you can use this. So the earliest reference, written reference that we have to a ghost actually comes out of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was the earliest portion of it that has been found, um, dates back to about 2500 BC. And in it, it's Enkidu, who I mentioned before is Gilgamesh's friend and he finds out he's dying and he's worried because he's scared that he's going to come back as a ghost which suggests that they knew what ghosts were at least 2,500 years ago, or mm. B.C., 2,500 B.C. Now, one of the things that seemed very consistent around the world was that burial rituals and burying the dead was very important because if the, if the departed individual didn't have a good burial, then they would come back and haunt you, period. That is the most consistent theme that I could find culture to culture back in antiquity or in indigenous cultures as to why death rituals were so important because they didn't want them to come back to haunt you. So burying someone would be part of that. And so the earliest burial that we know of dates back to 90,000 years ago to a Neanderthal that was found outside of a place called Shinar's Cave, and he was placed, interred in the ground on a bed of horsehair uh, in a fetal position. Red ochre, which there's a whole bunch of stuff about ochre, but was put on his body, and, um, and he was buried. Neanderthal, 90,000 years ago. Wow. And what's interesting is that this same person, they think he was a shaman, because they found uh, flower pollen in the burial with him, and all of the pollen they found were was the pollen for medicinal herbs. And so they, it's also very suggested that suggestive is that he was some kind of an herbalist, and that you know the concept of herbal medicine also dates back at least 90,000 years. Wow. See, now you mentioned something there that I find very interesting that I think is kind of the crux of the entire, you know, ghost question, and that being that they were afraid that if they didn't bury the dead properly, the dead would come back to haunt them. And and that's what we need to find the answer to is where did why is it that when people are alive, we love having them around us and there are our loved ones and we want them to never go away and never die, but then when they do, all of a sudden to think that they might still be around us, suddenly this becomes a, a very negative experience. Why, why did we come up with this idea that we were going to be haunted by those who we loved right up until the time that they died? So that, I think, is, is the most fascinating part of all this, and I don't know if we'll ever find the answer to that. Well, but it's interesting, and I'll throw this out. I know we're getting close here. Um, there are cultures that 
perform ancestor veneration, mm-hmm. you know, so there's someone that dies and they might, you know, put them into a vault and then, you know, the skin comes off and they bring their bones and put them in like a little altar on their mantle, you know, or they bring their skull or they would bury the, their underneath their house so that they would stay close because they believe that these, uh, their ancestors could commun- they could communicate with them that they could interact with them you know on a regular basis that they could help bring good luck to them if they were venerated and if they were taken care of you know so on certain days you would leave them food you know or do certain rituals to honor the ancestors you know like de los de la mortes you know i mean that's what that whole festival is about is honoring the ancestors but if you didn't venerate the ancestors they could come back and haunt you you know so it's kind of like it was also a way of kind of doing a little bit of social control it's like okay well you know if you're not going to do what we want them spirits are going to get you so i think that there's a certain amount that has been over time shifted from you know i'm not exactly sure what the origin was into something that just became a giant threat. Well, the book is called Stepping Out of Eden. The author is our guest tonight, Dr. Rita Louise. I highly recommend that everybody goes out and picks this up because we're like, we're just scratching on the surface of, of what the book is all about. When you get into it, you can really get in depth with the reading, uh, and, and with the history of all of this and, and really start as we said before, seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, before we let you go, Dr. Rita, I just, I had mentioned earlier in the show that you might have been the person that introduced us to the concept of a meme. And I just want to ask you, did Bitsy Bob end up getting more likes than Glenn Beck? She did not get more likes than Glenn Beck. That's ridiculous. At her, at her height, I mean, I kind of, uh, well, one I want to share, so Miss Bitsy Bob passed away a couple of months ago. Oh, sorry to hear So it. that's very sad. Um, but at her height, she had 280,000 Facebook fans. Wow. I can only wish to have 280,000 <laughs> Facebook fans. But, you know, but I'm the mom of the dog that had 280,000 Facebook fans. So I guess that counts for something. What I want to know is did she ever use that as leverage against you? Did she ever say, you know, I'm the one with I'm the I'm a superstar. Yeah. You're not. Um, I think she tried. <laughs> Well, so anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about, you've probably all seen the image of the of the the cute white poodle dog with the tinfoil hat. That that was Bitsy Bob. So yeah, poodle in a tinfoil hat. If you look up poodle in a tinfoil hat, there's still face or web pages that had articles about her and the page, and you can she's all over the internet. So she may no longer be with us here on this realm, but she lives on. Uh, and 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 really, it's all about if you can just become a meme, you will live forever. That's yeah. we, we can all hope to reach that kind of a status. You know, no, the, uh, I'm gonna have to like take her picture and put little quotes on and figure out how to get it into that little gift thing on a. Facebook. Oh yeah, oh we can help you with that. Oh yeah, hey, cool. We'll do that. All right. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, and again, if everybody wants to check out Dr. Rita's site, soulhealer.com, follow her on Twitter at psychic doc. Reach out to her, find out more about all the different things that she does, and definitely pick up the book Stepping Out of Eden. Let's not make it so long before we talk again, Dr. Rita. That sounds good. We should talk food. Yes, absolutely. We will do that. (laughs) Okay. All right. Have a great night. Take care. 
You too, thanks. Bye-bye. That is uh, Dr. Rita Louise. Again, soulhealer.com is the website if you want to check it out for yourself. Uh, also, uh, if you want to pick up the book, Stepping Out of Eden, you can get it right there. Easiest way to get it. Uh, and you can also check out all of our other books as well, uh, that being the E.T. Chronicles, What Myths and Legends Tell Us About Human Origins, Man Made, The Chronicles of Our Extraterrestrial Gods, Dark Angels, A Guide to Ghosts, Spirits, and Attached Entities, Avoiding the Cosmic 2x4, and The Power Within a Psychic Healing Primer. All right there on her site, soulhealer.com, if you want to pick them up for yourself. Again, not going to be here next week. Heading over to the Oliver House for our Holiday Spirits event, which you can get tickets to at SpookySouthCoast.com. But uh, we'll be back after that, and we'll have pretty much an uninterrupted run of shows for quite a while coming up because we have uh, the holiday season coming upon us. We'll do some shows where we talk about some Yuletide stories and traditions. We'll also have our anniversary show coming up in January as we hit 13 years on the air. And uh, and then a, a nice run of shows before the Red Sox come and make us start to go Internet only again. It's not that far away. So it's coming up pretty quickly. That's what happens when they win the World Series is it makes the offseason that much shorter. All right, so until next time, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular. <laughs>